Good morning. Good to have everybody. If you're visiting uh, with us today, uh, my name is uh, Pastor Dave. I'm one of the pastors on staff. We're, uh, we're very uh, thankful uh, to have you. In just a second, we'll be in John chapter uh, 19. Uh, but I think it would be appropriate today uh, to uh, recognize our North Polk Comet girls who made it all the way to the state final yesterday. We have Ava Sander. Not sure where Ava's at. Ava, where are you at? Normally you're over here. Ava, come on, stand. You got to stand. She was on the team. She doesn't want to stand. Wave. Let's give her a hand. They lost in, they lost in overtime, but man, did they represent the, the community, uh, community well. Uh, we're in John chapter 19, and we're in holy ground. Um, when, when you think... Um, about the rejection of the King of Kings, the Creator Himself. And the verses that many of us have read over and over, year after year, numerous times throughout the year, uh, about uh, Christ being arrested in the garden and the way He was handled all the way to the crucifixion, eventually uh, laid, uh, laid in the tomb. Uh, today we're in, we're in holy ground. When Jesus fed thousands, uh, uh, many, many, when Jesus fed people, thousands followed him. Uh, when Jesus taught people, according to the Gospels, hundreds followed him. Uh, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, 11 followed him in. And then Peter, James, and John went to the inner part of the garden uh, with them. When Jesus was crucified, five, count it, five disciples, one man, John, the only one of the disciples, and four women uh, were there at the cross. Uh, when he suffered, though, he suffered alone. And when he died, he died alone. Even the Father himself forsook him in that moment on the cross. And we should ask ourselves, or at least even if you already know the answer, why? Why would this, uh, why would this be the way the Savior is treated? Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at, for just a couple of moments, the fact that they scourged him and that they mocked him and spit in his face and uh, made him naked and, and, uh, bashed him in the face and uh, ended up crucifying. Why? Uh, why would that be? And, and there are a number of reasons, but let me cut to the chase and, uh, and give you the ultimate reason. And that's in some way that we shouldn't be able to totally understand that this was the plan of God for our salvation. It was determined by God in God's hand that everything we read about in John 19, look at today, this comes ultimately from the hand of the Father himself onto his Son. Peter will say as much in Acts chapter 2, men of Israel hear these words, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Oh, that should have been enough for everybody to get on their knees and confess themselves a sinner and, uh, and receive the Savior. But, but God's goodness, which is meant to lead us to repentance, 
often just takes, gets taken advantage of or uh, just taken for granted. So not by the wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, but this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. You crucified and you killed, now notice, by the hands of lawless men. In Acts chapter 4, a couple chapters over, I want you to notice whose hand is behind the hands of lawless men. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, speaking about God, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, the whole world's going to be involved in this, speaking about God to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So when we dive into the scripture here this morning, this is the hand of none other than the Father himself. Who could understand that? Which, which father here would stand up and say, I, I, let me reenact that in my kid's life? No way. We're, we're called to do the exact opposite. Let's step in with our hands. And yet this is holy ground because God saw in his sovereignty that he was going to step back and he was going to allow it all to happen. Just as it said in Isaiah chapter 53, hundreds of years before Christ, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is according to the plan of God. Now in the last number of weeks, uh, we've tried to show you that uh, in, this, in this last uh, time, going to the Garden of Gethsemane, that they start out in the upper room and they go over to the far left corner of the screen there and they cross the Kidron Valley after, after coming out the east gate of the city. Uh, they make their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then uh, last week they went up to uh, 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 the high priest's house. And, and today, uh, today we want to see uh, that we're going to go to the governor's headquarters. So we're going to go back across uh, the old city, Jerusalem, and we're going to go to what is now called the Tower of David. If you went to Israel today, there's a remnant of this very, uh, this very place. And we're going to see Pilate um, go outside to talk to the people who want him crucified, go inside to speak to Jesus, go outside to talk to the people, go inside seven different stages of Pilate, like a pinball and a pinball machine going back and forth uh, to the governor's uh, headquarters. And here's actually a picture. I think I took this or one uh, very similar uh, uh, to this. Uh, that tower is called the Tower of David today. That's more than likely the Praetorium. That's where the Roman, uh, Roman uh, guards might have been. And this is most likely the courtyard uh, where Pilate was outside of for a little bit and, and, uh, and, and was around uh, way, way back. But this is where the crowd would have been yelling, crucify him. Uh, crucify him. Uh, so ultimately, this unjust trial that we're in right now has seven stages of Pilate going in and out. Outside are the agitated, frenzied opponents of Christ that want him dead. Inside is the regal, calm, totally under control uh, Christ 
himself. So they go inside, they go outside, inside, outside in John chapter 18. And in our story where we pick it up in John chapter 19, Pilate goes inside. And I just want to give you the little headings. We're going to look at inside, outside, inside, outside, a little heading on each one of these. Inside, Pilate goes, and he basically, just to give a kind of a cover phrase, Pilate scourges Jesus. Look at John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. They struck him with their hands. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. In John chapter 18 and verse 38, he says, I find no guilt in the man. Uh, So why do we find in John chapter 19 and verse 1 that he flogged him? And they twisted a crown of thorns. They put a purple robe and they smashed him in the face. If he's innocent, why are they doing that? Well, Pilate is desperate for the approval of the crowd, and they want him crucified. And so when you have some time to think about this, in Pilate's mind, he must have thought, I'm going to bring Jesus to the point of death, and then bring him outside, and they'll have pity, and they'll have compassion, and they won't actually crucify him. How wrong was Pilate? He was very wrong. That didn't work. So let's just take a moment, holy ground, and reflect on what Pilate uh, had Jesus go through. It says first that they flogged him. Uh, Some versions say scourge. Uh, There were basically three Roman soldiers. They're called lictors in this case. And uh, somebody reenacted it, a historian of what, what this instrument that they would have used, it would have been like a small, the bottom of a baseball bat and had leather straps that were maybe 18 to 24 inches. And at the end of the straps were uh, uh, shards of bone and uh, even metal that they had. And if you look closely, uh, they were meant to uh, dig in and then pull across. So they had one on each side, uh, one straight in his back, and they would take turns, uh, 13 lashes apiece, left side, right side, center, uh, 39, one less 40, because at 40 was proven that most uh, men would actually die. The purpose of the scourge or the flog was to either elicit a confession from the criminal. Well, Christ is not going to confess something that's not true. Or so weaken the victim, the the criminal, that when he actually was hung on the cross, it would actually expedite his death on the cross. History records that there were men that were actually crucified that, that hung on the cross alive for up to four to five days. And nobody wanted that, so the Romans would scourge the victim to the point of death to weaken them uh, so that they would die quicker on the cross. We know it worked for Jesus because when they put the cross and told him to carry the beam in the city, he fell down. He couldn't do it. He was so weak. Uh, History records that most men that were scourged went mad from the physical and emotional pain And many died right there. They never even made it uh, to the cross, which the Romans were happy with that as well. The crown of thorns 
that was placed on the head. Uh, if, you, if you know your Bible, you've been around your Bible, should immediately take your mind back to Genesis chapter 3, where the thorns were the consequence of the curse of Adam and Eve's sin. And so th uh, thorns are a consequence. Matter of fact, Paul got this connection between the crown of thorns and the thorns that are a consequence of sin when he wrote in Galatians 3 in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being a curse for us. So what I want you to see in every detail, in every detail, uh, God, uh, God was uh, radically, uh, radically involved. And then, of course, the purple robe, he was, they stripped him naked. It was uh, to mock royalty. And then it says in almost every, all four versions that they struck him. They struck him with their fist. And uh, um, when you put the accounts together and you read the historians, the Roman centurions were in Jerusalem to hold the peace. Pilate's job was to collect taxes and keep the peace. So there was a Roman presence in Jerusalem, and there was a greater Roman presence in Jerusalem whenever it was Passover, up to 200,000 people would come. But generally, if you were assigned to Jerusalem uh, during the year, it was a very boring job. There wasn't a lot that was going on, and, and actually scribbled in some of the pavers that are still over there, uh, the Romans would come up with games. One of the games that's mentioned, uh, that's mentioned by the other gospel writer was a game called Hot Hand, and this is what they would do. They would, they would gather uh, soldiers all around the, the, the victim, in this case, Christ. They would sh show them their fists. Then they would blindfold Jesus, in this case. And then each one, other than one person wouldn't, everybody else would punch him in the face. And one person wouldn't. They would take the blindfold off, and they would have the victim guess who, who didn't hit you. Matter of fact, if you read Luke's account, the Roman centurion said, uh, prophesy if you're the God. Who actually hits you? Mocking him. And then they would blindfold him again and hit him again. It's like pin the tail on the donkey, only this is punch the Savior in the face. Now, I know that most of you haven't been in this passage this week. I've had the privilege or responsibility or the burden of meditating on this all week. I've personally never known somebody so kind and gracious in all my life than Jesus. Amen. Amen. And to think of this, Well, uh, Pilate thinks this is going to do uh, the trick. So they go outside in verses 4 through 8, and Pilate presents Jesus. Again, if you look at verses 4 and 6 of John chapter 19, two more times, Pilate tells the crowd that he finds no guilt in this man. Look at verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Uh, verse 
Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And then, and then Pilate says, not even knowing what he's saying, behold the man. He, he was trying to appeal, I think, to the crowd saying, look at this gnarled up person. And isn't this enough? Can't you say, let, no, he's endured enough? No. So Jesus standing there, what appears to be powerless, pitiful, and pathetic. He's anything but that, amen. Here's what the psalmist said hundreds of years before this, speaking prophetically of the Savior. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I can count all my bones because they were fleshed out. They stare and they gloat over me. Isaiah, thinking about this. See, the prophets had the vision of this Messiah-like figure being beaten to smithereens, but they couldn't figure out how's that going to be the Messiah. They didn't know. Isaiah says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, this is God's word, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of, a, of the children of mankind. He said he didn't even look human. He, he, was, he was so mashed behind and in front. Well, Pilate uh, says, when you take all the accounts together, well, what, what shall I do with this Jesus called the Christ? What, what should I do with him? Behold this man. What do you want me to do? Haven't I done enough? Crucify him. Crucify him. And I just want you to notice verse 8. It says at the end of verse 8 that, that Pilate was now even more afraid. Well, why was he afraid? He, he's in charge here. Well, when you put the accounts together again, well, Pilate's wife had just sent a note to him. Pilate's wife said to Pilate, I had a horrible dream in the night and it disturbed me. And I'm telling you, don't have anything to do with this man. You see, Pilate's riding the fence here. He's not taking a stand. And one of the things that comes out of this, at least for me, it should be for us, is are we riding the fence or are we taking a stand? Pilate's riding the fence. I think Pilate was rattled by the claims of Christ, but I think he was equally rattled by the calmness of Christ. So now we go back inside. Pilate's going to question Jesus. And he asks him some questions. And if you notice in verse 9, no answer. Silence. He's not talking. Well, do you know who I am? Uh, Jesus, if, 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 if it was Dave standing there, yeah, you're a little peon. He didn't say that. He didn't say anything. Even the father's silent. He doesn't say from above, hey, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's forsaking Christ right now. Well, why didn't he say anything? Well, let me give you a couple possibilities. He's already answered numerous questions of Pilate. 
Pilate's asked so many questions and got so many answers that Pilate has already been convinced that he's innocent. Why does Jesus need to keep talking? To me, his silence demonstrates his strength under control. That's called meekness. But here's the main reason. Our salvation, our forgiveness of sins depended on him being silent. It's his hour. It's been divinely appointed that Christ should suffer at the hands of sinners for sinners. And therefore, Christ declined to say anything that would stop his suffering from happening. Go back to Isaiah again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, uh, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was the plan from the hand of God himself. Now, if you look at verse 10 of John chapter 19, Pilate condemns himself. Um, he condemns himself and he says in verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not see all these robes and all this jewelry? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So by his own words, he's condemning himself for all eternity. He's going to stand before the Lord someday and he's going to eat those words. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 19 and verse 11. You have no authority over me. At all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you have no idea what's going on here. You're a pawn. So what I think God the Father wants us to see, and I know the scriptures and the spirit want us to see, that Jesus' power and authority, you know, on the cross, they're going to say, if you're God, come down from there. No, 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 no. Because he's strong, he stayed up there. Jesus' power and authority are in full display, not by escaping the cross, but by enduring the cross. Well, Pilate now goes back outside, seventh time out in, out in that whole scenario, and he's going to deliver Jesus, believe it or not. In verse 14, it says it's the sixth hour. And according to the Roman way that they kept time, the sixth hour is 6 a.m. He's going to be crucified at 9 a.m. It's going to go dark at noon for three hours, and he's going to die at 3 p.m. The clock is moving faster. And now it says in verses 12 through 16 that this was the day of preparation of the Passover. Let's just stop and see the irony of that little note. The day of the preparation of the Passover. 6 a.m. in the morning, first light. It's the very hour the priests begin to slaughter the Passover lambs for sacrifice. Historians say that on the Passover feast where everybody came, up to 200,000 lambs. They start early. So at the very hour the priests are doing their thing, just hundreds of yards away, Jesus is doing the ultimate thing. But it's the day of the preparation of the Passover. 
So if you know your Bible at all, well, what was the Passover? Where did that come from? Well, that's when God, through Moses, brought Israel out of Egypt and, and the angel of death was going to pass over. It's the deliverance. So think about this. The very day that the Jews were celebrating their salvation from the king of Egypt, they gave allegiance to Rome's king. We have no king but Caesar. And they killed their king. That's messed up. Matthew 27 said, oh, you say crucify him? Well, I find him innocent, so I'm going to wash my hands. And he got out water. Well, water is not going to take away sin. Amen? Luke says, the voice of the priest and the people prevailed over Pilate. Man at his worst, God at his best. Now, Pilate, instead of taking a stand, he tries to ride the fence. Do you know that that does not work with God? God's not an in-betweener. Right. He's, I, I think I can say this, he hates fence riders. He said in the book of Revelation, you're not hot, you're not cold, I would rather puke you out of my mouth. James 1 and verse 8, I think he must have thought about Pilate, a man of two opinions is unstable in all of his ways. Or could we take what James said a couple chapters later? James says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Pontius Pilate's brief appearance in Scripture is full of tragedy. I mean, it's just tragic. He ignored his conscience. He disregarded his wife's advice. He chose the crowd over the king. He failed to recognize truth when it was standing right in front of him. Well, the first trial was a mockery of justice. So I'd like to close our time by having another trial of Jesus. Let's put Jesus on trial. And you be the jury. I'm going to call witnesses. I've asked them to speak the truth, the whole truth, and how does it go? Nothing, Nothing but the truth. So let me call some witnesses to a real trial. Here's Jesus, he's on trial. Let me call some witnesses. You be the judge, every one of you individually. I don't know, uh, maybe 10 witnesses or so will work this morning. Let's start out with uh, John the Baptist. I mean, there's no uh, greater, according to Scripture, born of a woman than John the Baptist. I mean, he knew Jesus. He got to baptize him. Uh, John, uh, here's, uh, here's Jesus. Uh, what, would, what would you, what would, be your, what would be your testimony about this guy? Uh, uh, this guy by the name of Jesus who claims to be the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sins of the world.
Oh, thank you, John. You can sit down. Let me call Peter. Now, I'm taking a chance on calling Peter because you never know what Peter's going to say, right? <laughs> but I've told Peter before, I'm going to call you. You got to speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Peter, what do you have to say about this guy by the name of Jesus? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Thank you, Peter. I know you want to say more, but I'm going to have you sit down for now. John. Now, I know I'm on uh, uh, dangerous ground here because everybody knows that John and Jesus had this thing, and John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. But John, uh, could, you, could you give a testimony about this individual uh, that's on trial right now? And John said, the word of God became flesh, or the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we, and I've seen his glory, glorious from the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Thanks, John. Let me call Thomas. Uh, Thomas, you weren't the most convicted guy in the world while you were hanging around him, and you kind of doubted a lot. Uh, so, Thomas, uh, what would you say uh, for the jury here today? Who, who, who would you say this man is? And when it was Thomas's moment, he fell on his knees. And he said, my Lord and my God. Well, Dave, kind of unfair, you called all of his friends. What, was his, what would his enemies have to say if you called them? Well, let's call a few. Judas, come on up. We have the jury out here. Uh, you had a hand in this. What would you say? What's your testimony about this man who claims to be the Christ? I've sinned against innocent blood. Okay, thanks, Judas. Pilate, come on up. I've told you like three times publicly, I find no guilt in the man. Pilate, if you don't mind, I'd like to call your wife up. Oh, man, I, I got to tell you, I had a dream, and I told my husband, don't have anything to do with this just man. Well, let's, you might be surprised, but let me call before the jury the Pharisees. Now, they're the ones that actually produced a bad verdict. What do the Pharisees have to say? Well, this man receives sinners and he eats with tax collectors. Can you believe that? Praise the Lord. Well, let's call some officers who in John chapter 7 tried to arrest him. They were sent to arrest him. They came back empty. Why did you come back empty-handed? Uh, no one ever spoke like that man. I call the Roman centurion who was there that most likely pounded the nails into Jesus' hand. What would be your testimony after doing that dastardly deed? Certainly this was a righteous man. 
How about the bystanders? If I could call three or four of you up here, you saw him being crucified. You observed the whole thing. You were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, what, would, what would you say? What would the bystanders say? Uh, truly, this was the son of God. Uh, next, I'd like to call the thief on the cross. Now, he was up in paradise. He didn't really want to come, but I told him it was necessary for him to come down. I'd send him right back. Here's what he said. We received the dire reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Well, Dave, is there, come on, you kind of stack the deck here a little bit. Well, why don't you call a demon? Okay, let's call a demon. What do the demons say in the Gospels? By the way, all these words that I'm, Using, I'm not giving you the verses, but they're quotes from their truth, whole truth and nothing but the truth. What are the demon? What, what would you say about this guy right here? We know who you are. You are the, listen to this, the Holy One of Israel. My last witness, if you haven't believed any of them, I'm going to call the Father himself from heaven. This, this guy, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased and you need to listen to him. My Lord. I just want to challenge us as we end here. No matter where you're at in your in your life or in your religious experience or in your Christian life, whether you know Christ personally or you don't. The theme is no riding the fence with Christ. You know, uh, you don't have to be opposed to Christ to be against him. Did you know that? Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. There's no middle ground. So picture this as we close, and I'd like to... Jesus standing before Pilate to be judged by Pilate. Only one day, very shortly after that, Pilate will stand before Jesus to be judged by Jesus. As Jesus was before Pilate, Jesus is before you. As Pilate stood before Jesus one day, soon you will do likewise. What say you about this Jesus? Who is he to you? Now, when you read scriptures and you've been around uh, the evangelical world and you've had a relationship with Christ, it becomes very obvious that most men and women like Pilate have a day of grace that comes their way, an open door. The Bible actually has a phrase called, it's called the day of visitation, where God speaks clearly. A choice is presented. In the final analysis, Pilate had to choose between Christ and the world. And that same choice is laid out for us here this morning. And so if you haven't received Christ and you don't, uh, you, you've heard the testimony of a dozen, both enemies, or if you've been on the fence, you know Christ, but you're not standing up for Christ. 
Uh, then here's what I would say as we close this morning. Number one, bow before him. Like, like get below him. Get low in front of him. Bow before him. No tipping the hat to Jesus. You must bow the knee, amen? amen. Repent to him. You're a sinner. He's the Savior. This is representative of the fact that he took your sins and my sins on himself on the cross. That's the only way you'll have sins forgiven. You can't outrun bad deeds. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out by the blood of Christ and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Bow before him. Repent to him. Trust in him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Place your trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because this guy right here, he did get crucified. He was buried. But because he was completely innocent, he rose on the third day. Amen. Amen. Trust it. Amen. By the way, we could call the 500 witnesses that saw him walking around. That's it. That's it. And then lastly, don't just bow before him, repent to him, trust in him, stand up for him. Right. Pilate rode the fence. Jesus wants you to take a stand. I would encourage that. It'll be one of the greatest things you ever do in your life. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for everybody that's here today. I want to thank you for this somewhat incomprehensible love that you as a father could have that would send your son and that your hand would be the hand behind the hands of lawless men who scourged him and beat him and mocked him, spit in his face, he plucked out his beard, marred to the degree they couldn't tell whether he was actually a human crucified nothing but grace came out of his mouth Lord would you take the beauty of that and the love of that and the sacrifice of that and would you drive it deep into every one of our hearts here this morning some will need to respond by asking you to be their personal savior and taking their sins away and coming into your life and trusting in you. Many others will need to respond by saying, no longer on the fence. I'm because of the beauty of this and the sacrifice of this and the humility of this, I'm going to take a stand for my Savior. Lord, do your work in Christ's precious name. Amen.